Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins. Welcome back to the Box and One podcast. A little hiatus here as we wrapped up our high school season, but we are back, baby. It's Sunday, March 6th. We just saw Jason Tatum drop a whopping 53 points in a fantastic matchup with the Brooklyn Nets. It's the last day of the regular season of college basketball, and we're thrilled to be joined by a two-time guest of the pod and a friend of the box and one, C.J. Marchesani. C.J., in the words of the great Tobias Funke, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's been an um, awesome college basketball season as a whole, and I am just absolutely amped up for these next couple of weeks. It's my favorite part of the year. The calendar turns to March, and not just scouts or NBA guys, but every basketball fan out there can kind of get on board and say that March is an unbelievable month of the year to just watch high-caliber hoops. And, you know, what we're going to talk about today is a little bit of a focus on champ week here, championship week in the NCAA, all of these conference tournaments that are going to be, be played. And, yes, we're going to look at it from a scouting and a prospect perspective, but I have long maintained that championship week is the best week of hoops throughout the year. It's better than the NCAA tournament to me where you only have kind of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and really it's the natural rivalries. It's knowing that for a lot of these smaller conferences, there are Cinderella bids on the line. And beyond that, it's the bubble poppers that are, is a really unique thing to watch in the occasion, not just the upsets that happen on the big stage, but whose ticket is never going to get punched because one team comes out of nowhere and wins their conference tournament. So CJ, we usually start out the pod by asking you a basketball specific question. You've answered that before since you were on the pod. So we are going to change it up a little bit and ask you, which week do you prefer the opening week of the NCAA tournament or championship week with all of the conference? Tough one. I, I, I love both. And I actually, Every year I stop scouting today. Like this is my last day of scouting until the, the I'll watch the championship week and I'll watch um, the first weekend of March Madness before I go back into like deep dives and stuff. Just because first and foremost, I'm a fan of the game. So I, I never want to lose that. That being said, I think the first weekend of the tournament, there is more basketball and phenomenal basketball on this week, but something about, the tournament just feels a little bit different. It gives you the tingles. And I think that's probably my favorite week. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it is a hard choice to make, which I think is part of the reason why we asked the question. But I'll always go back to when I was, I think, a freshman in college, skipping a science lab one afternoon to make sure that I saw the, the Big East tournament back in its yeah. heyday. And it was the, the big deal. And that was the cardiac Kemba shot that I was able to, to witness nice. live because I skipped that environmental science lab. So good decision in retrospect, probably not a great one at the time, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it is what it is here. So CJ going into prospects and diving into things, mm-hmm. it's amazing how quickly the end of the season kind of sneaks up on plenty of folks. Uh, Patrick Baldwin Jr.'s season is already over. And I noticed there was a lot of feedback on Twitter and, and on a lot of these, you know, internet platform saying really that that kind of seemed to be an abrupt ending to the year and, and plenty of folks wanted to see more of him surprise the mid-major season for these poor teams end so early but that got us thinking here as we're moving into championship week who else do we need to get one last look at as a prospect right who else should we be paying attention to 
before their season ends and wraps up. So that's what our focus is going to be here between CJ and myself today, is looking at seven different prospects that we have circled as potential draftees in 2022 who aren't on teams good enough to necessarily qualify for the NCAA tournament. They either have to go on a major tear this week to win their team's automatic bid, or their season is going to end, which means this will wrap up the sample size that we have for them to audition for the NBA draft. So CJ and I got together this morning, came up with a list of seven guys, and we'll add in an eighth afterwards for anybody of CJ's choice. But CJ, you're ready to dive into some of these guys here and just kind of give us a feel for what your take is on, on each prospect? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, we're just going to start with Harrison Ingram out of Stanford. Uh, Stanford right now, they're, they're, they're pretty bad. 8-12 uh, and 12 in the middling Pac-12 this year, 15-15 and 15 overall. And Ingram has stood out as a really strong-bodied six foot eight, 230-pound wing. He loves to mismatch posts. He's got a pretty good handle of the basketball and is a sensational passer with elite feel. This season, averaging 10.5 points, 6.6 rebounds, three assists per game. Those are solid numbers for a freshman coming into a major conference. The big knock on Ingram has been that he's about 30% from three. The touch doesn't look great, and those numbers are actually up because he's gone on a little bit more of a hot streak over the last two weeks. He's getting dared to shoot a lot of those shots. Teams sag off of him and, and really ask him to be more of a perimeter threat than somebody who thrives off contact and trying to bang down low. Ingram is one of those guys that might be on the fence of being you know, somebody who declares this year or returns to school. And beyond that, he's also kind of that end of the first round, early second round range, which is really tough for one and dones because a lot of times they're going to want to bet on themselves, declare now and think they can be a first round pick when maybe it's smarter to go back to school and do what guys like Jaden Ivey or Ben Matherin did, which is improve in a couple minor areas and all of a sudden you're vaulting yourself higher in draft boards and getting an increased payday. So a lot of decisions coming up for Ingram, but CJ, what's your take on him as a prospect and as a player from what you've seen this year at Stanford? Overall, I think he's one of the more undervalued guys in the country from an NBA standpoint. I think that his archetype is kind of the future of the NBA, which we saw swept in in last year's draft class, which is big guys that can handle, process the game well, make decisions, and just size and intelligence. I think size and intelligence is a really dangerous combination that the league is kind of moving towards. That being said, it's tough to get a great evaluation of what he's going to look like because I think his best role in the league is kind of like connective tissue, right? On good teams, being smart, knowing what to do with the ball and just being big, smart enough to make everything else work. You know, like it gives you a lot of leeway. The issue with his evaluation is Stanford runs a lot of their offense through him in like a post-centric, let him create um, for others, like running motions off of his post, which is probably their best option this year. They don't have a lot of great guys, but counting on a freshman post guy to run a full college offense is just never going to be efficient enough to, unless they're like elite of the elite. So I think he's been in like a different role then I would like to see him ideally to scout in. And like you mentioned, the three-point shot needs to come around. And part of the reason why I'm high on him is because I think it will. I think that the last couple of years have shown that the threshold for the NBA to just get yourself to improve to like league average 
is a jump that a lot of guys are being able to make right now. Shooting development is happening pretty readily in the league. So I'm not necessarily too concerned about that. I just, I wonder if his season maybe shines him in such a poor light with NBA teams that it might not make sense to come out. I have him as a top, a easy top 20 prospect. And I don't think it's very close, but the production hasn't been there because of the role he's in. Yeah, see, I've had Ingram in the 20s, so not necessarily as high as you've had him, but mm-hmm. I do see him as a first-round type of player for, for like you talk about, size and feel are incredibly yeah. important. One thing that I've learned as an evaluator is to value feel a little bit more. I used to be on the uh, shooting side, right? If somebody mm-hmm. had high feel but low shooting, I'd say, eh, I don't know if I love them. Teams just go underneath the pick and roll. They're going to be limited in how they can play off ball, et cetera, et cetera. And I've kind of flipped the script on that for a lot of the reasons you mentioned, right? Shooting development is happening a lot more frequently than it used to, but also feel guys find ways to just impact the game. And I think that's where Ingram stands out. What, what gives me a little bit of pause, only 10 and a half points per game while being the focal point of an offense, right? Mm-hmm. So create for others centric in a lot of ways that it, you know, I don't know if Kyle Anderson is the right comp for somebody like him because he's a little bit bigger, slow motion type of wing. But I just, I don't know if Ingram's going to be that guy who looks at the basket enough to warrant a heavy kind of creation burden in the NBA. Whereas if he's used maybe in a place like Golden State where they want to mismatch post him and play him like Sean Livingston, where he's creating in those situations, they run lethal shooters off around him and he can find those guys. That's an optimal role. But beyond that, it's I'm having some challenge in seeing him ever average 10 a game in the NBA. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that no matter what, there's going to be a little bit of rewiring of his play style when he gets to the league because teams, he's not, you can see it at Stanford. He's going to improve. He's only a freshman, but he's not good enough to be the hub of a offense. The, the, the one that everybody's running off of at a college level, even at this point, let alone at an NBA level. That won't be his role. But I do think that he is smart enough to switch to a more perimeter-based role. And a little bit of that is going to come with working on the body and becoming a little bit better laterally. But he's a strong defender. And I really, I have had that same kind of switch that you said from shooting to feel. I think that the game is so much more dynamic now than just, the even of four or five years ago, Harden, Steph Curry, just like heliocentric ball, Luca ball. And guys need to be able to work in so many different areas now that aren't just spot up shooting. And I think he's great in all of those little middle grounds. And I think he had, he's only a freshman. He's got the potential to grow. And I love taking bets on productive freshmen. So I maybe agree that he's not a, let me up the threshold to 12 point per game guy at the NBA level, but where he's going to be picked if he goes out this year, which is probably the start of his range is 20 instead of anything like that. Like I'm perfectly fine getting an intelligent, big connective tissue kind of vibey wing in the system. And mold. I would rather mold freshman clay that is already productive and good at basketball than quote unquote toolsy guys that don't have the basketball part down yet. 
Interesting. Well, CJ, I'll, I'll ask you this question. And for each of the seven prospects we'll go over, I've got one question outlined that would, would love to get kind of your take or feedback on. But sure. my question with Ingram, what would he gain from going back to school, right? Is there something specifically that he needs to work on? Yeah, we talked about the three-point shot, how it's only at 30%. I think that's an obvious one. But there's also risk when you're just talking about shooting, right? If you go back to school for year two and the numbers themselves don't get much higher, what did you really gain from the experience? So what is it that Ingram can really work on or gain by going back to Stanford if that's the path he chooses? Yeah, I think that it's less what he needs to improve on, which I think the thing that he needs to improve on is his body, right? Lateral agility, stuff like that. Drop a little bit of weight, even if it takes away from the post game, because in the league, he's not going to be a post player. But I think it's less that and more another year of all of Stanford's players developing another year of Ingram developing just maybe puts him on a slightly better team and has him looked upon a little bit more favorably from an NBA front office. It's less that he needs to improve his skill. He just needs to improve maybe his marketing, if you will, the way he is being looked at. And I think that that's going to be a theme for a lot of these guys because they're not on the winning teams that we're talking about going to the tournament. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Well, if anybody's looking to watch Harrison Ingram play one more time, the Stanford Cardinal are going to be taking on Arizona State Wednesday at 3 p.m. in the first round of the Pac-12 tournament. Uh, CJ, we'll move on now to another trendy kind of late first round name and another freshman who's pretty intriguing in a lot of ways. Bryce McGowan's for Nebraska. Uh, McGowan's caught my eye real early in the season with some strong scoring performances. Nebraska has been a bit of a dumpster fire this year. I mean, the Big Ten is a tough, tough conference right now, especially if you don't have any type of interior presence, you're going to get killed in the league. And Nebraska has been in last place pretty much wire to wire this year. I think they opened the league with 11 or 12 straight losses. Uh, McGowan's himself, a six foot seven, really skinny lead guard. You love guys who can play with the ball in their hands, have that size and that length. It's also appealing that his shot, it, while it has some mechanical flaws and is only going in 28% of the time from three, does have some projectability, and, and he has enough faith in it that a lot of people seem to believe he can be a good shooter at the next level. But the production is, is off the charts. 17 points a game, five rebounds, one and a half assists. I think that assist number climbs if he has some better teammates around him. What jumps out to me, Six and a half free throw attempts per game. For a skinny guy and a freshman, he's been fearless at attacking the basket and finding ways to get to the charity stripe. He's had a, multiple games with 10 or more free throws this year. And he just had on, I believe it was Friday, 26 and six in a road win over a ranked Ohio State team. So there's a lot of good to like about McGowan's, but also a lot to fix. Where do you stand on him right now? Yeah, he's a guy that I think could benefit from going back to school or maybe even transferring to a different school um, and potentially ending up as a top 20 like level lottery guy the following year. He is, the foul drawing is really what draws me in. Um, I think that his ability to get to the rim and create contact when he gets there is very impressive. I do buy the shot. Half of shooting projection is just volume and he gets threes up there. He gets far twos up there. So I'm not necessarily worried about the three-point percentage. I think that this is another one where, like Ivy and Davis last year, where they started coming on down the stretch and you're like, okay, I can see it. I think it would help his stock to return 
not because I don't think he'd be a value in the first round or the early second, because I do, but, but because I actually think that he has the capabilities of getting to like top 15, like lottery level with a really good season next year. Now the question is, is he, can he have that really good season at Nebraska where he's not necessarily where he can up his efficiency to a point you feel more comfortable and I think that that's a good question. And I think that more and more guys need to be ready for the league when they're going to the league. And when he, if he gets drafted early second and goes to the NBA, he's not going to be given the ball. He's going to have to work into off ball stuff and fit more in on the edges. And I actually think it would be better for his NBA development to return have a team feel comfortable putting some sort of draft stock in him so that he can be trusted with those on ball responsibilities at the next level and try to like be one of those guys. He's got a little bit of the Josh Primo stock and syndrome to me uh, from last year where Primo was, you know, he'd have a great season if he went back to Alabama, if he declares now, where does he really end up? He declared and he ended up going in the lottery. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's necessarily in McGowan's future this year for couple of reasons. One, he's not shooting the ball efficiently enough at 28%. And he actually has a little bit of a form quirk that he's got to fix. It's a little low right now. It comes from just in front of his, his chest or right by his chin. I think if he gets that up a little bit higher, especially with that six, seven size, and, and I, I think he's probably got around six, eight, six, nine wingspan, that shot gets off over NBA defenders. Um, you know, my big question was going to be, should he declare this year? It seems like you are a little bit more on the side of staying in, the, in that regard, uh, I think it's it's really going to come down to what comfort he has with the recruiting class that Fred Hoiberg can bring in. We know Hoiberg it sounds like he's going to get another year at Nebraska. He's been somebody who has pieced together really good teams on the transfer market before. I would expect him to be incredibly aggressive at trying to do so again this year. The, the missing piece in a lot of this conversation around McGowan's and and really where do you project him long-term is exactly what you said. Can he get enough efficient reps with the ball in his hands to be somebody that NBA teams don't necessarily try to pigeonhole as more of an off-ball guy and just develop that? I think there's so much more to him playing with the ball in his hands that that has the intrigue for me, especially knowing that he's six foot seven. So I've long been a McGowan's fan but I really just don't know where to slot him right now in comparison with all of these other kind of freshmen that are, are flirting with the back end of the first round. Yeah, it's tough. And for some reason, my, the guy that I always like look to is Max Christie because they're kind of the opposite side of the same like late freshman first round pick coin in that I think Christie is going to return to Michigan State. But I, I think Christie would be better suited to make the jump to the NBA because he's so good in those in-between zones, filling in the gaps, playing off the team's best player. I don't think that McGowan's sticks as a rotation NBA player if he's being asked to space and not really play to his strengths, right? It's almost where I, I think that those on-ball guys like that need to prove that they're either good enough to deserve the on-ball reps and deserve the high um, draft pick and get that draft equity in them or, or like, or not, you know, can you do this or not? Because if he goes in the league 
and tries to play that connective tissue role. I'm not sure that that's necessarily his strength. And you have to be ready for the league when you make the league more and more. Their teams are not going to be, especially in the late first, patient developing a 25th pick to hopefully be a on-ball guy in the future. It's just you have to be able to play with the best players or be one of the best players. So I think he he needs to prove to teams in the lottery next year that he's worth that pick and he's worth that development because I don't think he's best suited for coming out this year. It's funny. I've been watching a lot of lead guard film at this early point in the draft season. You know, I, I just finished Antoine Davis scouting report, a point guard from Detroit, uh, did uh, – you know, working on right now, Max Asmus at Oral Roberts for when his season's going to wrap up. And then uh, Jordan Hall has been another guy on our, our radar as well as watching some McGowan's tape lately. And the thing that strikes me is a lot of these guards who are the main engine for their team, their, their coaching staff is putting in a scheme that really spreads the floor, tries to play a little bit more five out and relies on pick and pops in order to create three-point attempts to keep up with other opponents and to spread the floor so these elite guards can have a little bit more space to finish. I think it does a lot of these guys a disservice in terms of pick and roll reps because there's nothing that collapses help defenders. So we have very little in terms of you know corner kicks or how do you react to somebody tagging the roller and make the right read when you're driving to the basket. There's just very few clips that are out there on a lot of these guys. So on-ball reps and development for what will inarguably be different in the NBA when they're next to one of the best rim rollers in the world, it's, it's really hard to project. And I think that that's where playing at Nebraska more than anything has hurt McGowan. It's not just in the teammates that he's surrounded by, but the scheme that tries to split, spread the floor and have him do everything that isn't an apples to apples comparison for the NBA. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and it's tough, right? It's, it's not easy to track where these guys are going to go or what they're going to look like at the next level coming from these college offenses. And I think a common theme with all of these guys on this list, or at least most of them is like you were alluding to, like, this is a primary ball handler on the team. How you, you, you don't, you're not picking anybody in the late first, early second, mid second to be a primary ball handler on your team. How do you look when you are next to the best players on the team? Because that's like a scouting philosophy thing of mine. When you're drafting somebody and if you're drafting somebody and they can't fit the best players on their team, it's a natural ceiling to how many minutes they can play and how much return on the investment you can get. So a, how do you look against the best players on the team and B how do you look when you don't have the ball in the hand in your hand? Can you defend? Can you space the floor? Can you make quick decisions like decisive decisions off the catch? Because if not, you're not being drafted to put the ball in your hands and then we'll see what's going on. So it's a lot of projecting these primary on ball guys on worse teams into what their role might look like when they're kicked off the ball. Well, we're going to move now to two guys who really have been best with the ball in their hands. And ironically, they're both teammates. They play for NC State, which for some reason, two NBA draft prospects who are teammates, both averaging over 17 a game and are on the, the last place team in a down ACC. A lot of strange things going on at NC State. But we'll dive into Darian Sebron and Terquavion Smith, all name teams as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but 
we'll we'll just kind of give a quick statistical rundown of each guy, and then CJ, I'm going to turn the floor over to you to to talk about these two. Uh, Darian Sebron, 17.3 points a game, eight rebounds, 3.1 assists. He's only 26 and a half percent from three, but really efficient from two point range at over 52 percent as a sophomore. Similar to McGowan's, he gets to the free throw line a ton, six and a half attempts per game. A really good sign for him. He's a ferocious downhill attacker, and I absolutely love how he attacks the glass. Turquavian Smith, a little bit different. He's maybe 155 pounds, maybe 160, super, super thin, but a natural scorer with as much confidence as you can find. 16 and a half points, four rebounds, two assists, and 38% from three, a really good shooter from range. He has come on late and become kind of a, a late draft darling here. Since January 29th, he's averaging 21 points, five rebounds, three assists a game, and shoot, excuse me, shooting 41% from three on 10 attempts per game. This guy is letting it fly. Look, NC State is a mess, particularly on the defensive end. But what do you see out of these two in terms of NBA translation? And what should somebody be looking for if they're tuning in to see them play for the last time this week? I think that the big thing is just from a zoomed out point of view, I find it hard to believe that there are two NBA games on, or NBA players on NC State, right? Like I, I, they're both producing and that's great, but I can't picture too many college teams that would be last in a bad conference. And you could point to them and say, they have two, they had two rotation players, like in their lineup, you know, like I, I just think that somebody's not as good as we think that they are. And I, I don't know. I, I think that just from a player breakdown standpoint, Sebron is obviously a monster getting downhill. Nobody gets to the rim quite like he can and quite as powerful as he does. Draws a lot of fouls. He's just an absolute bowling ball getting downhill. And Turquavion is like the opposite. He plays off of that. Everything that you alluded to. I, I just, I don't, I don't have either one of them graded particularly high. Neither are in my top 40. Agreed. And I, they both have some pretty significant holes in their game. Sebron being the outside shot. And like we talked about, how do you look off the ball? I don't think he's a tremendous defender. And I don't think he's a, he has a very natural touch about him at all which makes him an off-ball slasher only that doesn't really bring it on the defensive end like the typical non-shooting off-ball guy. So I've, I've soured a little bit from early season on his NBA viability. Smith is a little bit easier to project because he's got the shot, right? So he's got to work on his body a little bit. He's only a freshman um, and there are some glimmers of hope there, you know, like there, his size is not a death knell, but I think that I am every day a little bit lower on Sebron's translation to the league. Yeah. So I have Turquavion outside of my top 75 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have him. So I'm looking here. He's in the eighties on our board. I kind of have them tiered a little bit more when you get to the bottom at that point. And I have Sebron outside the top 60. So long-term, I think I'm higher on Terquavion. I I would probably go back and adjust my board a little bit here as the season is coming to a close and and rate him a little bit more highly. But part of the reason I'm not trying to to leapfrog Terquavion too much higher is I think he has to go back to school. 
physically with where his body is at, he's not ready. Um, and beyond that, like you said, getting those on-ball reps and being somebody that can create a little bit more, another season of doing that in the ACC, maybe being the guy that leads his team out of the basement, being able to put up the consistent volume that he's had here in February uh, for a full season would make him an ideal kind of later part of the first round type of guy, just one of those great second unit scorers that a lot of these NBA teams can covet in that 25 to 40 range. But um, I'm with you. Something's up, right? You can't find a team that has two really good NBA talents like that. That's going to be last place in the ACC. It's just, it's, it's not how things work. So my question for you is really with these two guys, which one do you prefer? And if you view Sebron as more of a slasher than maybe a, a big handler and creator that might color it one way. Do you have a long-term preference for who you think is going to be the one guy with the best chance to stick in the NBA? Long-term, I think I'd probably go to Quavion um, just because he's a freshman. You know, he, He's a productive freshman, which I, I like to see. Sebron is listed as a sophomore. He actually had a, a gap year after high school and then a redshirt year. So he's senior aged. Um, and I think I would just give the slight nod to the, I don't know, the more mystery box interquavian because I'm not completely sold that Sebron is a guy. Um, if I had to draft one of them right now, at the very least, Sebron is an NBA body and you know he's going to get downhill. So I think I'd probably draft Sebron over Terquavian right now because I don't know how much, like anybody drafting uh, Smith right now is like drafting him and stashing him in the G league for two years. Like there's no way he's like a second contract guy. If he comes out right now. So I would, if Smith is going back to school, I would prefer Smith's long-term outlook. If they're both going in the class this year, I'll take Sebron and close my eyes and pray a little bit. A very diplomatic answer. We like it. That's a, that's a creative way of getting around. always hedging, always hedging. <laughs> Well, uh, for anyone looking to watch NC State play, they're going to be taking on Clemson Tuesday at 4.30 in the 9-14 matchup of the ACC tournament. Of course, if they're able to upset Clemson and move on, they're going to end up facing the top seed teams that are they're going to be still left on the board. So a long way to the NCAA tournament if NC State is going to make it. Speaking of skinny guys, John Butler for Florida State. I think this is one that we have to – to touch on here if we're going to be mentioning 2022 prospects because Butler's name has come up a lot more in the circles that I've kind of kicked the tires around with and some of those private conversations I've had as a late riser to potentially be a first round pick this year. Butler's 7-1, but he's only 190 pounds. He's skinnier than Chet. He's skinnier than Evan Mobley was last year. And he only plays about 19 minutes a game, which that's not to be too alarming for a lot of you that don't follow college hoops. Leonard Hamilton, the head coach at Florida state is known for playing 10 to 12 guys in his rotations. And not a lot of, uh, of prospects have come out of there by playing 26 or more. I mean, even Patrick Williams and Devin Vassell had their minutes closer to the 20 to 25 range. Butler per 40 minutes. Let's look at those stats. Two great unicorn traits, 2.4 blocks, and 40% from three on 5.7 attempts. That's a tantalizing combo. combo. And look, there's, there's worries, right? I, I think the strength is one of them. I get worried that he only shoots 44% from the free throw line. Like that's a major red flag to me for somebody that's supposed to be 
a long-term shooting threat. Where are you right now on Butler? And if you're watching him for one, maybe two more games a season, what do you need to see in order to feel comfortable having him as somebody that you would consider in this year's draft? Yeah, absolutely. Butler's just like, he's a mystery match. Now, like there's no, anything he shows me in the next one or two games is just going to have no impact on where I'm projecting him to the NBA. There's just no production at the college level that could possibly translate. I think that the best way to frame Butler is to completely forget that he's seven foot one and don't make him a big and don't make him a stretch four and don't make him a three and D wing. He's a shooting guard in all aspects. He's a, he's a seven foot one shooting guard that fires the ball can open up some passing lanes because he's seven foot one picks up full court on the defensive end. Like he's a, he's a guard. He's a seven foot one guard. So I'm not necessarily worried about the strength as it pertains to protecting the paint. I'm more concerned about the fact that he's so tall and skinny that it makes it difficult for him to drive. I, I think all shooters need a little bit of a counter to a hard closeout. And Butler's Butler's two options right now for counters to hard closeouts are pass the ball to someone else or just shoot over them, which he does a lot. I, I think that it's so hard to project and I love to stay in my safe little bubble of projecting college uh, production and age to NBA production. And Butler is the ultimate tools guy, except he's shooting 40 something percent from three and can weak side protect the rim and is improving game over game. I think that he is going to end up being an NBA guy. I think that he's going to need to go to a creative front office and a creative coaching staff. And I think that the only front office that would take him would be a creative front office. So I don't think that that's going to be an issue. He's not going to go to Tom Thibodeau. Like, I I think that, I think that he's such an interesting case. And in a draft where after 11, 12, maybe, I have a lot of long-term questions about the guys in this class. I can see an NBA team at 25 thinking like, why not? I don't think this, I don't think I'm choosing between rotation players right now. So I might as well take a, take a stab. I I think that he's a interesting case. I think that the pre-draft process is going to be crazy big for him. Huge. Huge because Leonard Hamilton embraced him. He uses him as a guard. He lets him pick up full court. He's showing all of this uniqueness, but there's just no way to scheme college development or production from a guy that is a two-year project in the NBA. Like there's just no good way to play that guy. I don't think it's Hamilton's fault. And I think it's been good that he's let him show his stuff, but Butler's going to make his money if he enters this class in interviews and in draft workouts, shooting against nobody or three on three or whatever it ends up being, because then you're just looking at this guy. You're like, what the heck do we do? How do you not take it? So he's going to end up being lower on my overall board based on probability, just because the production's not there, but someone should take him in the first round and or early second round and unlock him and invest in him. Mm -hmm. And basketball will be a better place for it. It, it, This is the one guy that I keep, 
circling back to for, you know, right now I've probably got about 23 first round grades on my draft board. So if you've got the final seven picks of that first round, what do you take a swing on? Why not Butler? Like, again, I don't know or have the best ways to really use him. I don't fully understand. I like, I think I'm a somewhat creative guy, but I'm very much like, I like to have things nicely in a box and be able to easily project the type of role that I'm seeing. And that's difficult to do with Butler. Um, man, I, I, you know, there are a lot of teams that are going to have multiple first round draft picks, whether that's Houston Rockets, Oklahoma city, thunder, Memphis Grizzlies, like why not invest and take the swing on Butler? You mentioned testing the waters and the pre-draft process, right? He's got to receive a lot of really good feedback and probably receive a first round promise if he's going to stay in the draft. Otherwise, why not go back to Florida State and try to do the same thing over again? Because you know Leonard Hamilton is going to take care of him. That said, I worry actually about Butler playing in draft combine scrimmages. And it's not because I don't think he can hold up against other good players or you're trying to hide him in those ways, but it's exactly what you talked about. He's like a two guard who just happens to be seven foot one. And some random NBA guy is going to make a roster and have him end up guarding EJ Liddell or Trace Jackson Davis at Indiana. Like he's going to have to play the five in one of those settings. And it's going to be a disservice to him. He's going to yeah. get it posed in a lot of ways and, it, and it's going to drop his, his draft stock in a lot of ways. Now, hopefully there's an NBA team or general manager that might be able to see through it, but man, I wonder if there's a way for him to go through all of the interviews to do private workouts with teams, not do any of the combine playing and then make a decision on whether to withdraw immediately after. Yeah. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be tricky. It's going to be tough. Um, I think that his thing is that it's not like, he's not, he's not better than any of these players now, you know, like you're not, he's not supposed to be, he's a freshman draft project. He's not supposed to be better than EJ Liddell. I agree with what you're saying that he won't look great in combine scrimmages, especially because combine scrimmages end up usually being like a bunch of old guys against each other. Yeah. And he's not going to have that, that like structure that or development kind of thing. Like he, if I had to pick out of the top 60 guys on my board, to win a game right now, John Butler wouldn't be at the top of it, but that's not what the draft is about. You're not, you're not drafting a team to play a pickup game tomorrow. And I think a lot of that reason is, I think a lot of that educates the decision to stay in the draft or go back because what are you getting out of going back to Florida state? He is a multi-year development project. He's going to go back to Florida state. He's going to have, slightly less freshman like shine of young player we've seen him already for a year and he's it's not like he's going to be all acc or something he's gonna he's a development project i think that his path is like he's going to be on different places for different nba draft boards you need to find the situation and the team that believes in him and is willing to do the develop developmental excuse me work and put him in the right spots and treat him how he needs to be treated and grow for that team. Another year of a college coach trying to win a ACC championship or something like that. I don't think that's in the best interest of John Butler. And it's contradictory to what I said about 
wanting to be ready for the NBA when you go to the NBA. But I think no one's going to ask John Butler to play heavy NBA minutes year one. He's you the take, exception of the rule. You know, yeah. he's, seven, he's seven one one ninety. He has to be the exception of the rule. Yes, exactly. So I, I think it's complicated. And I think that I'm interested into seeing how it plays out. So am I. Well, if anybody's looking for one last chance to, to see Butler play, and if you haven't, I highly recommend you do because it's just, it's a, such a unique experience. Uh, Florida State plays Wednesday at noon, taking on Syracuse in the ACC tournament. That game is on ESPN, so it should be nationally broadcast. And because it's the noon slate, there is not going to be one preempting it. So you get to see him start to finish. CJ, we're going to move to two last prospects on here and go kind of the mid-major route. These are guys that are either on good teams that have a you know, chance of not getting the bid in their league and therefore their season might end or some of the mid-major guys that, you know, aren't on the best of teams, but are still NBA type of prospects. We'll start with Ryan Rollins at Toledo. The Mac is a one bid league, but Toledo atop their standings right now, 17 and three in the regular season, but there are four 20 win teams in the league. So there's no guarantee that just because they had the best record, they're the heavy favorites to make it to the NCAA tournament. Rollins has been a sleeper on many draft boards. He's a strong-bodied 6'4 guard. He's made significant strides as an athlete from year one to year two. And as a sophomore here in the MAC, he's averaged 19 points, six rebounds, and almost four assists per game while shooting 48% from the field and career-wise 32% from three. CJ, what's your take on Ryan Rollins? I think that... I am a little bit concerned about Rollins and it's not because I don't think he's a terrific player because he is. I just get worried about six, five and under guards, mid-major guards, especially where saying like what separates you from every other quadruple a could be a backup point guard, more likely a G league primary guy. Uh, that's already there, you know, like how are you better than Grant Riller was as a prospect or the, the Raptors guys, or just like any of the really Carlick Jones, you know, like there's a lot of mid-major guys that have come up over the years. And I was really in on Riller. And I think a mistake that I made with Riller was instead of saying like, like you watch him, like, wow, he's really good at basketball. It's the, how does he play with your best player on the floor? How does Ryan Rollins play with your best player on the floor? Because your best player on the floor is going to have the basketball in his hands. Is Ryan Rollins going to, not that he wouldn't be fine off ball, because I think he would, and he plays a little bit off ball already, but wouldn't it make more sense to play someone else kind of thing? You know, like, I think, I think that there's a chance that he's a backup point guard in the league and can do that for eight years. And that's great and valuable, but when I'm taking second round swings and at best he's going to be a second round swing, I want it to be someone that has the, some sort of ceiling, you know, like not just going to be my third point guard kind of thing, because even if that hits, it's relatively cheap to replace on the open market. I, I think that from a scouting perspective, I think that Ryan Rollins is a good player. I think that he will do good in summer league. And I think that he, may crank out a third point guard role on an NBA team. It's just not something I value necessarily. And if I'm going to be making a pick, I want it to have some sort of upside. I, I would love to take Ryan Rollins on a, um, like get him in camp, get him on my summer league team, that kind of thing. But 
I don't really have much interest in making a real investment in him. It's a player that you like, but not a player you draft. And I think that that's an important distinction yeah. you made there. I mean, I've done a couple mock drafts already this season. I've had Rollins in the top 60. I wouldn't consider drafting him. You know, Mike Miles, who I think is a similarly, mm -hmm. you know, pretty good point guard at the college level, not necessarily your best player, kind of inconsistent off ball, can shoot it, but it's not going to be a great shooting threat. Yeah. Like I've had him as a top 35 guy for most of the season, because I love the way he plays. I think he's gritty, defensively strong, quick, but similarly, I don't have him being drafted in mock drafts right now. And I don't know if I would take him any earlier than like 55. So yeah. there's a, there's a huge barrier for a lot of these guards where, you know, we say big men are a dime a dozen these days because the position has been changing and evolving so much. I think point guards are always going to be that way. You know, as a, a guy who used to coach college and, and recruit a lot, I always felt comfortable that late in the process, if we needed to find a good six foot point guard for our team, we could go out there and find one. Yeah. It's going to be the same thing at the NBA level. There are tons of guys lined up in the G League who can put up numbers and play really well with the ball in their hands, but that's not what they're going to necessarily be asked to do in the NBA. And I think that that's where Rollins only shooting 32% from three is probably going to catch up to him. A, a good player, a worthwhile draft prospect to monitor, but not necessarily somebody that I would be beating down the door to, to get in the, the late 50s. Yeah, I, I genuinely enjoy Rollins. Like, I like watching him play basketball. I think he's awesome. a good basketball player. I would love to have him in my program. I just, I'm not going to give up an asset to get him when I could like, I liked Carlick Jones a lot last year. I was in the same spot with Carlick, you know, like at least he's six, four, at least Rollins is six, four and can hang in some two guard lineups and has like some paths. Yeah. I don't want to say that there's no possibility that he can get to that point because he's a good basketball player. There's a chance he adjusts. It's just, it's not the bets that I like to take in the second round. And, and I would put McKinley right in that conversation for me. He was a guy who I really, really liked last year, but like, how, how do you draft that guy super early? Like maybe in the late part of the second, it seems okay. Yeah, you can, I, I am, I've said this on a couple of different places. You could pick whoever the hell you want after 45. I don't care at all. <laughs> Priority undrafted free agent, guy you really like to get on the program, guy who knows somebody that you want to lure in free agency or you want to draft later or you'd like hanging out with. After 45, you can draft wherever the hell you want. Fair enough. Uh, I think you can make an argument for any of those guys there. Yeah. And, and look, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why somebody like Caleb Love, who certainly has his struggles, is a little bit more of appealing of a pro prospect because yes. he can be an elite knockdown off ball guard. And yes. when you have front court creators, and I think what a third of the teams in the NBA have their primary option who's six, seven or larger. Like having a point guard who can just shoot the crap out of it is really important. Absolutely. That's a great comparison because it's just like, it's the outs, right? It's Caleb Love could make it as a backup point guard. He could also make it as a lights out shooter. You know, there, it's just variety, like giving yourself multiple different ways that you can hit as opposed to having your ceiling be backup point guard. That's an awesome analogy. I, I, that's a good comparison there. Well, We'll, uh, we'll pivot to our last prospect here on the list. And CJ, this is one that's going to be near and dear to your heart a little bit because I know you're a Philly guy and went to high school in Philly, played two years of college in Philly. It's Jordan Hall for St. Joseph's, playing on the second worst team in the A-10. I know it hurts me to say and probably hurts you to hear out loud, but
but uh, it's a pretty good mid-major league, the A-10. I don't think it gets enough credit for having some solid prospects and just a really high level of basketball. That said, Hall does everything for St. Joe's and they're still a basement team. He's six foot eight lead guard who, by my measure, has elite feel and really, really good basketball IQ. As a sophomore, he's averaged 14 points, six and a half rebounds, six assists a game. Very similar numbers to last year. So at least we know he's going to be a consistent producer. He's shot 35% from three on good volume this year and smoothed out mechanics. He went and kind of tested the waters last year, went through some interview processes, decided to come back to school knowing he needed to work on the mechanics of his shot. They've greatly improved both off the catch and off the dribble. He's a unique piece because he's six foot eight and he has that feel. We talked about connective tissue and guys that we bet on with size and feel. The shooting is starting to come along in a lot of ways. Yet I still don't see Hall as a, a relatively highly thought of prospect, at least in terms of first round conversations. Where are you at with him? And what is it that I'm seeing that might be wrong to have him as a top 25 guy? Because I certainly do right now. First of all, the Hawk will never die. <laughs> I have seen a ton of St. Joe. So I have, I've seen a lot of Jordan Hall, of course, in the last couple of years. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's one I've been having trouble putting into words. So this is probably good that I'll be able to talk through it a little bit because I do value size and vision and shooting. And he has all three of them. It's, it's something that is like a pretty consistent thing that I look for and value. There's something about Jordan Hall's game that doesn't sit right with me. And I think it's uh, the lack of physicality. He doesn't get to the rim very often, which is a theme from last year. But more than that, he doesn't defend physically. He doesn't embrace contact. And he, he just doesn't have the he doesn't handle contact well on either end. And he doesn't really seem like he ever wants to play defense. I think that I buy the shot there from a scouting standpoint, I buy the shot. He's got excellent vision. Um, and being six, eight should make you a decent enough defender that you're not a liability, which is all you're looking for. But a lot of times he's a liability, even at the a 10 level on the defensive end, because he's not fully engaged and his, vision which usually translates to an understanding of the way rotations work on the defense doesn't translate he misses stuff he misses rotations and when he is in the right spot he doesn't finish plays physically on the offensive or defensive end it it feels weird because it goes against a couple of my tenets but that is a few of like they're the things that are kind of holding me back from being all in on a guy that I would typically be all in yeah, interesting. So look, just looked it up while you were speaking. He takes two free throw attempts per game, which is concerning in two areas. One, the volume that he creates with and how often he plays with the ball in his hands, particularly out of the pick and roll. And two, he likes to mismatch post. Like he likes to back guys down from the perimeter and use his size advantage, but he always uses it for a post fadeaway. The fact that he never sweeps through and tries to get to the free throw line or hits somebody with an up and under, tries to back them down physically, it is a little bit concerning. Um, the defense is the big worry though, right? He does not have lateral quickness or a desire for physicality. And I don't know what to do with either of those. Yeah. If you're looking at stats right now, 
close your eyes because this is what I brought out last year and you'll be able to see why it was more dramatic last year. Over two whole years of Jordan Hall's career, this dude's six eight for everyone that, that isn't clear on that. How, guess how many blocks he has over two years? Let me guess. Let me guess. Uh, three. That's six. Six. Okay. It's not good. He had one block over 637 minutes last year. He had one block. And over a thousand minutes this year, he has five blocks. It's just he has no physical it's physicality is the word. He doesn't do anything with physicality. So I'm gonna and play I'm gonna play devil's advocate for a moment here, CJ. Please do be, talk right. me into Jordan Hall. Yes, I so, love the Hawks. All right. Really high volume offensive players at the mid-major level in particular. Mm-hmm. They are asked to do so much offensively that they tend not to exert the same amount of energy defensively that you would expect. And I don't think that a lot of those guys end up being as negative at the next level as you might have them seem to be, because they play a little bit more of a diminished role in offense. They understand that they have to play defense in order to stay in the rotation. Their effort naturally picks up a little bit. I'm not saying that translates to physicality or quickness, both issues that Hall has, but I think I'm a little bit more willing to overlook some of the defensive miscues or lack of effort for a guy who's just asked to do so much at the college level that we know he's not going to be in the NBA. Yeah. And it's, it's a good point. And I think what you kind of alluded to there is the reason why I'm a little bit skeptical in that he doesn't do it on the offensive end either, even when he should be all the way locked in and like, he's got the ball in his hand. He doesn't get downhill and draw contact he shies away from contact and to the detriment of his offense so like even if your guy like he's like i need to score points and he's wired like that for the college level he's going to tweak that in the league because a lot of guys have done that it's concerning to me that it doesn't show up on the offensive end either at the end of the day i am not going to be as low on jordan hall as it sounds like i am on this call i try to do everything from a base rate right and the base rate for me of a 6'8 guy that has great vision can has a legitimate jump shot at 6'8. Like not everybody can do that. The base rate of that is a first round pick. That's a valuable thing for a sophomore. It was a valuable thing for a freshman. So when I'm adjusting down from his base rate, it's going to probably leave me high second-ish because the skill set is still valuable. It's just there are other guys that, I have that same base rate at, and I adjust up because I also like their game. There's just, I should be able to explain it better considering how many St. Joe games I watched, but maybe it's because of how many St. Joe games I've watched that I just can't explain it. But I am a little bit concerned and will be adjusting down from what the stat profile says I should be. Fair enough. Well, I just, again, looking up the numbers on Synergy Sports right now, about 15% of all of Hall's shot attempts in the half court come at the rim. He's shooting a solid 56.3% on them, but he only gets to the free throw line 6% of the time, which as I'm looking at this here and trying to do quick math, I free think throw rate of 1.15 for yeah. his sophomore season, which is too low for a six, eight guy. It's too low for a primary ball handler. It, it just, it, it's, it doesn't hit any of the thresholds. As I'm looking at it, it looks like he only has three and ones on the year. So, um, again, a little bit concerning in that regard. Certainly understand it. 
with Jordan Hall if you want to see him play and you haven't already. Wednesday, March 9th, 1 p.m. It's the last known opportunity to do so. They'll be playing LaSalle, which is also at the bottom of the A-10, but the winner is going to move on to face one of VCU or Dayton, which is going to be a really good test. Some, you know, at least NBA fringe talent on those rosters, good defenses, and, and, a, and a, a fun environment to be able to, to, to witness for him. So that might be the end of the year for St. Joe's, but pretty much no doubt that Jordan Hall is going to declare this year, right? Went back as a sophomore, his draft stock really only, I think, gets lower if he returns. So if that's what he's focused on, I, I think that he uh, he ends up declaring this year. Yeah, there aren't really more questions to answer. If he was going back to work on the jump shot, it looks great. Um, he's not going to get more physical. Like it, it, the thing that I'm missing is all of that. And if you're going to tell me he's going to come back his junior year and have fixed all of that, I would consider myself skeptical. So I think he's probably a declare for the draft guy. And while you mentioned A-10s, it is a crime that they moved A-10s back to the week of all of the other big tournaments. Because one of my favorite yearly traditions is having A-10s be the week before and getting to watch all of those games. And I'm going to have to watch less A-10 games this year because of it. I'm not happy about it. Are they still in Boardwalk Hall? I think it's in D.C. this year. In D.C. Uh, I, Boardwalk Hall. One of the You're most making under, that up. One of the most underrated venues. Like, just such a such a cool place. If you've never been or, or seen just what it looks like on the inside of that place. So, so, so cool. But, all right, CJ, we've gone through seven guys here. There are a bunch of other names that we could have hit on. I'm going to read a few out here, and then we'll just see if there's one that's either on that list or not on that list that you might want to close with as somebody else to watch while we still can here this week. So guys that I've had circled, Aminu Muhammad from Georgetown, Iverson Molinar at Mississippi State, Orlando Robinson at Fresno State, Jalen Williams at Santa Clara, you know, a couple guards on there, Scotty Pippen Jr. at Vanderbilt, Max Acemas at Oral Roberts, and then Baylor Shireman at South Dakota State with the Jackrabbits, although they could be advancing on the NCAA tournament. All right, CJ, who you got? Is there anybody else that we missed that we need to be watching this week before their season comes to a close? From those guys, I think the most relevant are Orlando and um, Jalen Williams from Santa Clara. I, uh, Malinar too. Aminu Muhammad, I, I think, is almost has to return. He just yep. hasn't been good enough. Right. Uh, Aismith should have left last year. Shireman should have any sort of athleticism at all. The guy that we are missing, whose season is probably going to come to an end next week, is Jabari Walker. Colorado has a uphill battle to make this tournament, um, and I am still – all in on Jabari Walker as a top 40 guy. I would take him in the first round. I think that he looked 30 times better last year with McKinley Wright to set the floor. And this year he's had to kind of float into a primary role, which is just the complete opposite of the role he's going to be playing in the league. And I think that people should keep an eye on him because not just because he's miscast doesn't mean that he is, um, no longer a prospect in the league. And I think that somebody's going to get a steal because of the discount uh, from this year. Well, it's funny. I, I'm not big on the NBA player comparison game, but I get a lot of Dorian Finney Smith vibes when I watch Jabari play, just kind of that solid glue guy knocks down some shots, defends at a high level, good finisher on the interior, good athlete, just a, a lot of upside in those ways. Don't know where to place him on my board, but a good catch there that, that uh, we didn't include him on that list. I know. Colorado, I think 20 games that they've won this year, but because the Pac-12 is a little bit weaker, 
not necessarily going to be a bubble team unless they make a solid push in the tournament. Yeah, I think they they would probably need to win the auto bid. There's a maybe chance if they make it to the finals, but I think they their net is like, I think they're like 75th or 76th in net. I think they need the auto bid. Well, we've watched enough championship weeks throughout our lifetime to know that one or two of those bubble teams bids are going to get popped by somebody that we don't expect winning a a minor conference tournament or just coming out of nowhere, whether it was, you know, I think Georgetown last year um, coming in. Oklahoma or Oregon State too. Oregon State. Yeah. Like there's all these teams that just kind of come out of nowhere and end up doing it. So CJ, always a pleasure having you on here. You know, you're a friend of the program and, and someone we'd love to have on anytime you can do it. But before we get you out of here, please, plug your work, share with all of our listeners. What do you have going on? What's coming up in the pipeline? Where can we find you online? Sure. And first of all, thank you for having me. It's been a blast as always. Um, you can follow me at CJ Marchesani on Twitter. Um, my site is Roll Call Sports. Um, the Stepian guys too. Um, a lot of private work this draft cycle. So you won't see much written from me this year, but I, I've been working at Sports Aptitude, which is a kind of start up um, drafty thing that's going to be launching in the next week. So keep an eye out for that. And there'll be some more information there. Very timely, not just timely because you got a big launch coming on, but you can't spell CJ Marchesani without March. Perfect <laughs> to have you here. CJ, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you all for, for tuning in.